let's welcome Carl Hamad Liskan, who joins us to discuss the latest on immigration. Carl Hamad Liskan is a veteran policy strategist, a movement builder, writer, and advocate for immigrant rights, criminal justice reform, and racial equity. He currently serves as the executive director of Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, an organization committed to dismantling and transforming the immigration and criminal legal systems. Greetings, Carl. Good morning, Nana. There is a lot happening in the world of immigration policy. Um, I'm going to focus on three areas, detention, deportation, humanitarian immigration protections, and the pathways to citizenship moving through reconciliation in Congress right now. But first, um, many uh, advocates in immigration policy are feeling some frustration with the administration's immigration policy decisions so far. For example, a federal district court judge in Nevada just struck down a decades-old law making it a felony to re-enter the United States after deportation on the grounds that it has racist, nativist roots. Immigration advocates have called the decision groundbreaking. Judge Miranda Du ruled last Wednesday that Section 1326, which criminalizes reentry to the United States if a person has previously been denied admission or was deported, violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Advocates were happy. The administration is appealing. <laughs> the administration has also um, pointedly asked uh, Central Americans and folks from Haiti to not come to the United States. Where are we? What, what do you see as an advocate uh, that's had long work in immigration rights as well as criminal justice reform? Where are we with this administration? You know, I, you know, it saddens me to say this, but we are, with this administration, um, in a similar position um, to where we were a year ago today um, under the previous administration. Um, this administration, despite its promises to, you know, the American people um, during the campaign, um, despite its um, seemingly um, progressive or liberal overtones, um, has kept in place um, or advanced many of the policies of the previous administration, of the Trump administration, which really were, you know, the, the Trump administration um, really um, just embodied U.S. immigration law. And so, you know, to an extent, um, you know, this administration is um, keeping with um, the trends that we've seen um, over the last five years or so, um, you know, enforcing policies that, policies that criminalize immigrants that are xenophobic and that are racist. But the reality is that um, this, is the, this is the core of um, U.S. immigration law, and this is the main problem that we have here. We just did a segment talking about Hurricane Ida and what's happening in Louisiana. And, of course, when we think of Louisiana and we think of immigration, we think of how many folks are detained there. We think of deportations happening out of Louisiana, particularly for black migrants. More than one out of every five non-citizens facing deportation on criminal grounds in this country 
is black. Uh, we know that average is 76% of uh, the black folks who are looking at being deported in this country are being deported on criminal grounds. Can you talk about what is happening in terms of the criminalization of black migrants, the impact that that's having on our communities, and what we're talking about as, as advocates to stop the devastating separation of black migrants from our families and communities. Sure, Nana, and I'm glad you raised this because, you know, I think the conversation about immigration is often detached from our broader conversations about, you know, policing and incarceration um, and racial justice when the reality is that this is all one system that runs along the same trajectory. We know that most black people in the U.S live in communities that are heavily policed. Um, we know that the incarceration crisis um, in this country overwhelmingly impacts black folks. And not only do we see something similar in the immigration system where black folks are more likely to be detained um, and deported, um, it is really because of the criminal legal system that many black people end up in deportation proceedings. Um, you know, just to give your listeners a sense of how this works, someone, you know, encounters a police officer, they're stopped, they can get arrested, um, and the charges themselves, whether or not they're found guilty, can trigger um, an alert in the immigration system. So if someone, and oftentimes those charges might not even be criminalized locally or in the state that they live in, but because immigration law is so expansive, they could be deemed quote-unquote crimes under immigration law, which makes someone deportable. Um, fast forward, you know, someone goes through their criminal case. Um, if they're found, they're found guilty, they, you know, often, you know, they might be incarcerated, they might be sentenced. And a lot of people will think that their case is over. But if you're an immigrant, depending on what you're convicted of, this is, it's really just the beginning you now have to go through the immigration system, which although immigration law is, um, you know, on, on the books, it's supposed to be civil. Um, immigration is a, is a, you know, immigration violations are civil offenses. Um, our immigration system views itself as a criminal law enforcement agency. So it recriminalizes individuals um, after they've already experienced the criminal legal system. And for black folks, the outcomes, um, you know, the outcomes, are often, um, you know, like are, are just often um, adverse. Um, they often, you know, end up um, in immigration proceedings. Many immigrants go through proceedings without an attorney and without anyone to explain to them what's going on. Um, many end up in, in detention. And, you know, many immigrants, um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of immigrants each year are deported. And in fact, this administration um, has continued that trend. This year, we've seen already seen more or almost as many deportations as we did last year. And um, on almost on a weekly basis up until a few weeks ago, um, there were deportations going to countries like Haiti, um, which was already experiencing um, instability. And so there's another ruling that happened in the past couple of weeks focusing on enforcement priorities. And I wanna connect that to this conversation before we talk about humanitarian immigration relief. B 
because the enforcement priorities targeted certain individuals as people who the ICE should be going after, basically, and was touted as a way to reduce the number of people who were being detained and reduce the number of people who were being deported. Um, can you share with us what the impact of enforcement priorities were, particularly on black migrants, as you've just described, um, are pulled into this dragnet um, from the criminal legal system into the detention deportation machine? Sure, when it comes to black migrants, so the enforcement priorities, um, you know, basically they were a directive from um, the Department of Homeland Security, from the White House to ICE saying, these are the people that we, that we want you to prioritize arresting, detaining, and deporting. People that we deem public safety risks, people that we deem national security risks, people that are recent migrants, and so forth. The problem with that is, one, you know, these, these things don't have legal definitions. In most cases, we don't know what constitutes a public safety risk or a national security risk. Um, two, the, what, what is being used, the barometer that's being used, is the criminal legal system. And so for an arresting, for an ICE officer, anyone that, you know, almost anyone that goes through the criminal legal system, it could be a public safety risk and therefore an enforcement priority. When it comes to black folks, again, 75% of, of black folks that are deported is because of a criminal conviction. Um, so it's black folks are more likely than other immigrants to be deemed public safety risks um, by ICE and by immigration officials. Um, now, this is, you know, of course, that in and of itself is unjust. Another problem with that, though, is that these are, these, these are people, the people that ICE is targeting um, as public safety risks, have gone through the criminal legal system. And so the criminal legal system has inflicted its punishment. Um, and, you know, oftentimes they, you know, or in general, when someone is sentenced, it's a judge saying, we believe that after this amount of time, you will no longer be a risk. You should be released. You should go home. You should be with your family. Um, that's enough punishment. And the immigration system is saying, it just, it's, you know, it's basically overstepping their authority there and saying, no, you know, you judge, you know, even though the judge said that you should be out and about now and that you're no longer a threat after this amount of time, we still think you're a threat. So we're going to put you in deportation proceedings and prioritize you for deportation. And so now that the judge has struck down the enforcement priorities or, you know, basically said, hey, administration, you're not allowed to do that, should we breathe a sigh of relief? Does that mean that black folks and other communities of color are no longer going to be targeted by ICE? How do you, what impact do you think that might have? You know, no, we can't read a sigh of relief because, and you know, a lot of people in the, in the immigration field hold the enforcement priorities up as though, you know, as, they're, as though they're like the Ten Commandments, and so ICE can't do anything outside of those enforcement priorities. But the enforcement priorities are just those. They're just priorities. They're not law. It's just those are just like they're basically advice or guidance from you know from higher up saying this is who you should prioritize. ICE is still, ICE still has the authority and the discretion to arrest and detain um, and deport 
anyone that they deemed affordable um, based on immigration law. And so, you know, we can't we can't breathe a sigh of relief. Um, you know, those priorities were struck down. But all that really means is that ICE, instead of ICE focusing on, you know, that limited number of people that's listed in the abortion priorities, they now can prioritize everyone or anyone for deportation. And the judge added some piece that has been creating like almost a list of people, names and addresses of folks that had been released by ICE, allegedly, under these enforcement priorities. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out and whether the administration actually appeals that as they've appealed the ruling on 1326 that we talked about previously. Carl, you talked about Haitians still being deported to Haiti even two weeks ago, you know, right before the earthquake. And we look at humanitarian immigration relief and how that is being talked about in the context of Afghanistan. So as many folks know, Afghanistan uh, has a situation in which Afghans have been trying to come into the country. Many were brought into the United States, but there was a lot of holdup based upon the bureaucracy and what's available in terms of humanitarian relief um, that can come through immigration uh, policy. We know that there is a need for humanitarian immigration relief, not just with respect to Afghans and Afghanistan, but also for Haiti after this latest earthquake and the political violence there, as well as near war in Ethiopia and conflicts and crises in other countries in the global south. What should the Biden administration be doing differently? They should be allowing as many people fleeing violence and political oppression and natural disasters um, like, the, like the earthquake um, that took place a few weeks ago, which was exacerbated by a hurricane, um, you know, people that are were victims of, of a U.S. war, they should be allowing as many people into the U.S. Um, as possible. They should be, you know, they should be continuously flying planes um, into the U.S. because the reality is that many of these people um, are, you know, are in the position that they're in. The conditions in these countries um, are the ways they are because of the U.S either directly because of U.S. intervention and because the U.S., um, you know, took over their country for 20 years, or indirectly because of U.S. policies that, that, exploited, um, that exploited their land, that exploited their people, or that allowed U.S. corporations to come in and to, to oppress um, entire populations. Um, and so the U.S. should be, you know, fast-tracking and making it easier for you know, people experiencing um, calamity that makes it such that they can no longer live in their homes to come to the U.S. and to seek refuge here. And I'm thinking as you're talking about the humanitarian relief and the capacity for folks to come here, of course I'm thinking about the border, right? And just this repeated don't come, don't come, the double down that the administration has done on Title 42, which was before the administration when Trump was in power, 
touted and as cl- the clearly racist um, rule that it is, but now somehow has become okay. And where the, all of the different machinations that the administration seems to be going through with respect to the border, what should be happening there? Um, what you know, what is that? What is at risk in terms of people who are languishing on the other side of the border, and particularly black migrants who often aren't talked about? Yeah, you know, I think when it comes, in, particularly when it comes to black migrants. There are so few resources um, on the border for Black migrants that it's really, you know, I, you know, to a certain extent, survival is untenable um, for many Black migrants that are on the border. Um, they're in, you know, they're just they're in a position that's, you know, they're they're really in a space of limbo um, as they wait to see um, what's going to happen and what the United States is going to do. Um, you know, like I, you know, I've been a bit surprised by the lack of outrage, um, you know, from, you know, media funded, from immigration advocates um, on the Biden administration's rhetoric saying don't come, and they're cha- really the way that they championed Title 42. Um, there's almost been radio silence on it, um, where, again, just a year ago, there would have been protests every week. Um, and, you know, when it comes to black migrants, they're just, again, there's so few resources at the border, both resources in terms of, you know, people there helping and, you know, people there doing those types of humanitarian and charitable visits, but also just actual resources. There's very little funding for groups that work with black migrants on the border. Um, you know, there are a few groups that work with Haitian migrants, but we know that there are black migrants that, um, you know, that are not from Haiti that are from all over the world um, currently languishing at the border. And so, you know, we not only need, um, as advocates, we need to raise the alarms, alarm about what's happening at the border, um, especially when it comes to black migrants. Um, but we also just really need to, we need philanthropy. We need, you know, those larger organizations to step up and deploy resources to black serving groups um, to to black immigrant organizations to be able to go to the border and support black migrants that are there. Absolutely. And it wouldn't hurt to get some of these international eyes on there as well, whether it be Organization of American States, the UN, et cetera. Thank you for laying that out for us, Carl. And finally, let's talk about these pathways to citizenship. So last summer, the Biden administration, as well as many in the immigrant rights world, insisted that these pathways to citizenship were going to be for approximately 11 million undocumented people in the United States, that it was going to be citizenship for all. But as these bills have been drawn up, whether it be Dream and Promise Act, the Senate Dream Act, the Essential Worker Act, the Farm Workers Act, it's clear that some folks are going to get left behind. Carl, who is going to be left behind based upon what we're seeing right now with these bills? And what should be happening to expand and make sure that more people are included? Yeah, um, a lot of people are going to be left behind. You know, the more that we learn about these bills, 
the more that, you know, the, the, the more and we realize that they're really just going to be a start and not, not even, if they're not even going to get us halfway there when it comes to relief for undocumented immigrants um, in the U.S. Specifically, almost all of the bills, all of the bills actually um, have carve-outs for individuals with criminal convictions. Um, so those people that we, I, we talked about earlier in this interview, most of them, or anyone with a criminal conviction, even if they're not detained or deported, um, will be ineligible um, for, you know, for these immigration programs, for this form of relief. Um, it leaves out, again, recent immigrants, um, and it gives the discretion um, primarily to the government, to DHS, to decide who will be eligible. And the problem with that is, as we've seen over the last 10 years or so where DACA has been in place, um, when, when DHS has discretion, they are able to, they turn away whomever they want, and many, if not most of the, the folks that end up getting turned away are folks like black immigrants. So with the DACA program, even though, you know, almost 8% of immigrants in the U.S., undocumented immigrants are black, only about 2% of DACA holders were black immigrants. And many black immigrants were just flat out rejected from DACA because they have some sort of criminal context. And it doesn't even have to be a conviction. In this case, they're not looking at convictions. They're looking at one's entire record um, or their entire profile since they've been in the U.S. So, uh, you know, most of, you know, this is, that's a big group that's going to be left out. Um, you know, people that um, have arrived that, um, you know, that, um, you know, might have come over the border, um, unauthorized, um, you know, many of them are going to be left out, um, you know, if there are issues with one's taxes at any given point. Um, those folks are going to be left out. There's just a lot of categories of people that are left out of these bills. Um, you know, that's not to say that relief for some isn't good. Um, you know, green cards, citizenship, those are very important protections um, against deportation and enable um, folks to be able to work um, and, and make life a lot easier for some people in the U.S., but they're not magic bullets. Um, you know, they don't protect against racial profiling. Um, they don't protect against white supremacy. And they don't protect everyone. They really, you know, they don't benefit a large segment of undocumented immigrants. Arguably, you know, I saw a number that there were at least 20 to 25 million um, undocumented immigrants um, in the U.S. There could be. Um, and so if that's the case, then they, you know, they don't even represent half of undocumented immigrants. Yeah, a lot of people left behind hopefully will be able to at least limit the number of exclusions that are happening and then maybe get in some generous waiver that's going to allow folks to be able to opt in who normally would be opted out. We only have a couple of minutes, but I would be remiss if I did not ask you about bond because we know that in the criminal legal system, reform conversations, Bail is a, is a big piece of that, of what people are reforming and what people are changing. Can you talk to folks about immigration bond and what changes need to be made there to keep folks from being detained um, for long periods of time? Yeah, thank you, Nana, for asking about immigration bond. Immigration bond functions a lot like bail in the criminal legal system. It's a payment, or like we like to say, it's a ransom that people have to pay for their freedom. Um, you know, over the last few years, there's been a big move to end 
cash bail. And, you know, that's super important um, and great that we've seen those victories. In the immigration space, there, you know, there hasn't been as big of a movement because bond is one of the few ways that folks that are wrapped up in the detention system have of being released. Ultimately, the way to fix immigration bonds is to end immigrant detention. Um, no one should be detained, and then they won't have to worry about paying to be released. But immigration bond itself, they're just a myriad of problems. Um, the cost of bond is, is really, really high. Under federal law, the minimum bond is $1,500. So a judge, if they're going to give bonds, it has to be at least $1,500. But usually we see bonds, we at Brooklyn Community Bail Fund see bonds in the range of $10,000, $11,000. And then this year, under the Biden administration, we've seen bonds as high as fifty dollars to $100,000. Um, the way that it's set is arbitrary. Um, judges don't have guidance. Um, there's, no, there's no predictability in the way bond is set. People with similar cases can have different bond amounts set. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's just very, it's, a paying bond is an arduous process for families um, that usually don't have the money to pay. But even if they did, it's extremely difficult to pay. One has to have some sort of documentation in order to pay bonds. Thanks, um, Carl. The office to pay bonds are out and so forth. Um, Carl, I got to, I, I got to. I got to trans, I got to move, Carl, but I thank you so very much. Appreciate the information you've shared. Appreciate your insight. Um, we, we will make sure that folks know how to reach you or follow you um, and your work. If you could give us a Twitter handle, we'd appreciate that before we close out. Sure. Visit us online at brooklynbailfund.org, or you can follow me on Twitter at Carlkin, C-A-R-L-K-E-N. Thanks so much for having me, Nana.